Um, our scripture for this morning comes from the, uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Um, it's found on page 1068 of your pew Bibles. I'll give you a second to, to get there. Um, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sounds of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with his tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Uh, this is our scripture for this week and for next week. So the first, um, this first message will be mostly on the first uh, half of that chapter. But um, the first verse of this chapter says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and exalted. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died. And that's not just a throwaway line. It's really important for the context of this chapter. And actually, we have a good record of how King Uzziah died in Second Chronicles 26. Uzziah was a strong king, and he managed to build Judah into a strong army, which it almost never was. Under Uzziah, Judah didn't fight off invaders. It was the invader. They actually managed to expand their territory, which was very rare in the Old Testament, and they drew off the... Uh, Philistines. But Chronicles says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Uzziah thought he could do anything, so he decided to go into the temple and burn incense, which was supposed to be only the job of the priests. This meant that Israel's praise of God was in danger of being made subject to the king himself. Uzziah had managed to organize a fighting force out of the people of Judah, so he decided to add their religion to his arsenal. Maybe if he had control of their religion, he could use it to make them support the king more and to make them into a better army. And that happened to be exactly what his neighbors to the north was doing at the same time under Jeroboam II. But God forcefully denied him that opportunity. 
The priests tried to stop him from burning incense. And just before Uzziah could get angry with the priests, God struck him with leprosy, and he died alone as a leper. Uzziah might have been one of the most powerful kings in the history of Judah, but he was puny and helpless when he came into the temple without God's permission. And now Isaiah was doing a priest doing his duties in the most holy place of the temple, the very same place in the very same year that the king himself was struck dead for using God for his own purposes and not taking his holiness seriously. Isaiah would have had to have been scared to enter this temple. And if you read his vision, you would see that he was right to be scared. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings, and one called to another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and this house was filled with smoke. When Isaiah sees God himself, he's not seeing something like what he sees every day. God is surrounded by seraphim, which is a Hebrew word which means burning ones. We're not sure what they would have looked like, but based on the word, they probably would have been on fire. The seraphim would have been a marvel by themselves, something staring unapproachable, not the kind of thing that you would hear them say, do not be afraid. They shook the foundations of the temple with nothing but their voice. But even the seraphim can't raise their eyes to see God, and they have to cover their eyes with their wings. The entire temple is filled with smoke, which would remind the readers of the story in Exodus 19, when Mount Sinai was filled with smoke, and God warned the Israelites not to come too closely, or they would be burned by his wrath. In fact, there's a lot of fire in this passage, which foreshadows how God would come in judgment and wrath against the people of Israel, who had profaned his temple, trampled the poor into the ground, and fought needless wars like machines. This scene is confusing and bewildering and scary, and Isaiah clearly feels like he doesn't belong here, and he should feel that way. Because the last time someone got too comfortable, they were struck with leprosy. The first thing that Isaiah is supposed to notice, and we're supposed to notice too, is that God's holiness and perfection is completely and totally unapproachable. We can't come near it because we have soiled ourselves in our own deliberate sin. Isaiah had no right to be near this temple, except for God's own permission. Even the king had no right to be near the temple except for God's permission. Isaiah would have, would have been stared to enter because of what happened to his king. When he came in, the vision that he sees is meant to be bewildering and confusing, not the kind of place that you feel a mere human belongs. And you can really notice it when you see what he does and doesn't describe in his vision. He talks a lot about what's going on around God, the angels, the train of his robes, the throne he was sitting on. But he never says anything about God himself. The amazing and clear implication was that he was standing there and looking all around but wisely shielding his eyes the moment they came close to glimpsing God himself. Isaiah says, Woe to me, for I am lost, because I have seen the king. And that's not the powerful king Uzziah, but the king who makes every other king look as puny and helpless as he made Uzziah look. Because the Lord on his throne is the ultimate image of what the king looks like, and every other king is just a faint shadow of it. In the Old Testament, this might just be the most complete description of the holiness of God. God is totally different from us. 
and any attempt to make him one of our pawns is doomed to failure. If we come anywhere close to him, we find ourselves in a situation that's so confusing and bewildering that we can't help but feel like we don't belong there, like just being near him condemns us. It's the exact same thing that Isaiah feels when he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the land of people with unclean lips. God is high and lifted up, and he can't be approached. Now, we might think that God shouldn't be this way, that he shouldn't be holy in such a way that we can't approach him, that it shouldn't be scary to come to the presence of God himself. But if we look at some of our own experiences, I think we might be convinced otherwise. Think of a time when you have seen or experienced something so incredibly beautiful. Maybe you saw the Grand Canyon or an incredible sunset, and you just felt at peace with the world. Or maybe your child has just been born and you're admiring how incredible and beautiful this little life really is. What you instinctively find yourself doing is you treat that thing with respect and honor. You recognize that its beauty is fragile and you don't want to ruin it. You set it apart and you consider it holy. God is not fragile, but we treat his holiness in a lot the same way. And in the Old Testament, God cannot be near things that are defiled with sin. And that makes sense. He's the source of all goodness and beauty and love in this world. How could he be near those things any more than, those, than a baby could be near um, evil and violence? Why would we want him to be near those things? But why should we feel instinctively judged when we come into God's presence? Why should Isaiah feel uncomfortable being near God? Why does he say, woe is me, for I am lost because I'm a man of unclean lips? Again, we can see it in our own experiences, and it actually makes a lot of sense. I'm a big fan of this Peruvian chicken place called Sardis, which is mostly in Maryland. They have these incredible fried plantains, and they taste like candy. I could eat them all day long. They're a source of great pleasure to me. When I ever, whenever I go to another restaurant that has plantains, I always order some, hoping that they taste as good as the ones at Sardis. And they never do. It never even comes close. The beauty and perfect tastiness of Sardi's plantains sets a standard, and no other plantains can even come close to meeting it. I imagine those substandard plantains would feel judged if they had feelings. You might experience a similar thing. Everybody knows someone who is just incredible, that you can't even begin to understand why they act so loving and so nice and wonderful to everyone they come across. And I do too. But you might have the experience that even if they're not, you know they're not trying to judge you and it's not their fault at all, that you feel judged when you're near them because the moral beauty of their personality sets a standard and you recognize that you don't quite measure up to that standard. You might say something like, woe is me for I am lost because I'm a man of unclean lips. But not because you feel offended or angry, but because, you, because it makes you want to be better so you're more like that person. Now imagine that you're looking at God, the source of all goodness and beauty and perfection in the world. Of course you would feel judged if you were in his presence. You'd want to be better. So it makes sense that Isaiah would feel and act the way he does in God's presence. And this is the most extensive image of God's holiness in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, there's a very similar story about God's holiness and how no human can understand it, where humans look at God and can't help but feel condemned. And that story is the story of the cross. 
In fact, as John puts it, on the cross, Jesus was high and lifted up, just like God was in this story in verse 1. On the cross, Jesus saved the world. But if you think about the cross long enough, you can't help but feel that the cross also condemned the world. Its transcendent moral beauty is so incredible that you can't help but feel judged. This is especially true when you remember that it was on the cross that the world committed its greatest sin. It rebelled and killed the God who made it. And hardly anyone thought twice. No one even tried to stop it. God sent his only son to save the world and give it exactly what it has needed since the Garden of Eden. But humanity together rejected him and killed him, with hardly anyone coming to his defense. When we see Jesus high and lifted up on the cross, we see a bewildering and confusing and scary scene. The glorious king whose train filled the temple is being mocked and jeered by people far lower than him. Why doesn't he save himself? The way that Jesus suffers is so intense. How could we even begin to look at him? Just like in the scene of Isaiah, all we can do is describe what's going on around Jesus. The robbers on either side, the sign over his head, the soldiers gambling for his clothes. But we can't bring ourselves to look at the pain that we have inflicted on the Son of God. How could we have killed our Messiah and King, the one who came to save us? And if we have, how can we look on his face? On the cross, we see the perfect representation of God's holiness, justice, and love. And we see it even better than we saw it in our passage today that showed God in his temple. The cross is the power of God, and it's the power of a king giving himself up in love and service to his people, suffering and taking the place of a servant rather than a position of luxury and honor. Jesus took his seat on the throne of the cross, and the whole earth was full of his glory, but we couldn't see it. The beauty of this king on his throne on the cross was so intense that we can't help but feel judged. We want to set it apart and keep it holy. If we look at the cross just right, we see the perfect representation of God. But we also see the perfect representation of humanity. And not just the broken humanity which crucified the Messiah, but the genuine humanity that's found in Christ. The cross bids a person to come and die with Jesus, giving up our attempts to get power and honor, and instead calls us to sacrifice ourselves in love for one another. We are made into new people, doing exactly what humans were made to do, praising God and participating in a renewed community. And through the resurrection, Jesus started a new kind of humanity that can actually stand in the presence of God. He tore the veil of this temple that separated us from the presence of God. And so the spirit of God is on the loose. and We can all experience it and come boldly before God's throne. Through our own fault, us humans were possessed by evil powers to crucify the only source of goodness and holiness and justice in the world. On the cross, Jesus triumphed over the very forces of evil that possessed us to kill him in the first place. Because evil only speaks the language of raw power and honor and coercion and creates a world where, where nothing matters but power. But on the cross, Jesus bore witness to the holiness of God, which passes all understanding, the holiness that sacrifices itself for the love of the world. And he showed that there's a different way of having power and holiness 
by showing a different kind of throne in his throne on the cross. And in doing so, he has disarmed those evil powers so we can live a life free of them. On the cross, God revealed his holiness, which meant that we were condemned. But even as we were condemned by the kinds of people who would, who would crucify Christ, we also were saved by Christ on the cross. And now, instead of living according to the law of sin and death, which caused us to kill Jesus, we can live by a different law, by imitating Jesus himself. The Jews during Jesus' time talked about a law that undergirds all of the universe. And the Jews called that law the Torah, recognizing that God created the world with the wisdom that's found in the Torah. The Torah was created by God himself, who is absolute reality. And so wisdom is living in accordance with reality, so it made sense that a wise and happy life is started in obeying the Torah. But in Jesus, a far more perfect law is found. And it's a law that isn't written in tedious books like Leviticus, but it's written in our own history, in the image of God on the cross, that is impossible to get out of your head, even if you wanted to. High and lifted up on the cross, Jesus showed us that we are so far away from living according to that law, because we killed him when he lived it out. But he also shows us what it looks like to live according to the inner law of the universe. If we learn to love Jesus on the cross, we slowly learn to love what's lovely and to hate what's evil. And that's what makes for genuine humanity, the kind that isn't warped by evil into worshiping what's terrible for us and hating what's good for us. The cross shows us how to live now that Jesus has set us free from slavery. So today, put yourself in the position of someone in the crowds that crucified Jesus. Pray that God reveals to you the glory and holiness that Jesus displayed there. And if you're wise, you'll confess your sins, because you recognize that the moral perfection of Jesus on the cross sets a standard. And the evil that we participated in that killed him makes it so that you can't help but feel unclean. But on the cross, Jesus conquered those evil powers and freed us from them. And he sprinkled us with his blood so that we can be washed clean of the sins that make us unworthy to come to his presence. And in his resurrection, Jesus gave us a new human nature, which is exactly the kind of one that he had. And so God has empowered us to live a new life, which can look a lot like the beautiful one that Jesus had, loving and serving the world and giving himself up for it. And one day, God will fully cleanse us and give us white robes so that we can live in the beauty of his new heavens and new earth, and nothing will stand between us and God and between me and you. Let's pray. Most holy God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We are not worthy to come into your presence. We did not recognize your perfect beauty and holiness when you came on the cross. So help us to see it now, so we can be cleansed and made into a holy people through Christ our Lord. Amen.